thank you very much indeed, Professor McLeod, for that uh, very kind introduction. I'm absolutely delighted to be here in St Andrews today. I, I travelled from, uh, I think, a plague-free Edinburgh uh, earlier today, but it is a joy uh, to be here in uh, the beautiful uh, town of St Andrews. Uh, can I begin by uh, wishing you, the university, and indeed each and every one of you in the audience here today a very happy and prosperous new year. The start of any new year is, of course, a, a time for great excitement. It's a time for anticipation. It's always a time to reflect on the year just ended and to look forward with confidence to the future. Uh, for Scotland and for everyone who lives here in Scotland, 2014 will undoubtedly be a very special and a quite momentous year. It is a year that future generations will read about in the history books. Now, the immediate issues of the day will feature prominently in the debate that we have over these next nine months, and that is entirely understandable. But as we prepare to cast our votes in September, I think we should also consider the judgment of generations uh, to come. <laughs> on the uh, decision that we take uh, this year. I'm hoping that wasn't a judgment uh, on <laughs> this speech thus far. But what do we want the history books to say about us, about the choice we make and the reasons for that choice, and about its significance for the kind of country our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren will grow up in? You know, the choice that we will make on the 18th of September is profoundly different to the decisions we're used to taking every four or five years at the ballot box. The referendum is an opportunity without precedent in Scotland's long history to democratically and peacefully create a new country. People all over the world will from time to time look at and question the conduct of their national life the way their public services are run, the way they're governed, and how their economy is organised. They can debate these issues and ask, does it have to be like this? Well, this year in Scotland, we can ask that same question. But our big opportunity this year is not just to ask, to challenge, or to debate. Our opportunity is to act. When we go into the polling booth, we will be asked, should Scotland be an independent country? The answer to that short question, yes or no, will in no small way determine what kind of country we can expect to live in and what kind of country our children will inherit. So as we enter this next vital phase of the campaign, what I'm describing today as the two futures phase, there are four key arguments I want to make to you. Uh, the first is, that Scotland has got what it takes to be independent. Even the no side in this debate accepts that. And by recognising what we agree on, which in short is that Scotland can be independent, we'll be better able to focus on the question that really matters. Should we be an independent country? Uh, my second argument, unsurprisingly, is that we absolutely should be independent, but not as an end in itself. We should choose independence because of its transformational potential. Uh, thirdly, 
I want to argue that the decision we make this year transcends party politics. You don't need to support the SNP to support independence. Independence means that it will always be the political choices we make as a country, whatever they might be, that will determine who governs us and the priorities that they will pursue. And lastly, I'm going to argue that we must make sure that the debate we have over these next nine months empowers people to make an informed choice. The referendum is a choice. It is a choice of two futures. People don't just need to know what a yes vote will mean for Scotland. For you to compare, contrast and decide, you also need to know what a no vote will mean for Scotland. Now, I said a moment ago that there are things that the two sides of the campaign uh, agree on. Sometimes that can be easy uh, to miss, but it is nevertheless uh, the case. We agree, for instance, that after the referendum, whatever the result, it will be absolutely incumbent on both the Scottish and the UK governments to work together in the best interests of people in Scotland and in the rest of the United Kingdom. That joint commitment is enshrined in the Edinburgh Agreement signed by David Cameron and Alex Salmond in October 2012. And that's why, regardless of what is said now in the heat of this debate, we can be confident that following a yes vote sensible agreement will be reached on issues such as a currency union and a common research area for higher education. We can be confident of that because such agreement will not just be in Scotland's interests, it will also be in the interests of people across the rest of the UK as well. Both sides also agree that devolution has worked in respect of the powers that currently lie in our Scottish Parliament. Uh, that taking decisions in Scotland rather than at Westminster on health, education and justice has brought real benefits to people living here. But most importantly of all, in my view, uh, both sides agree that Scotland can be a successful independent country. In fact, these are the actual words that were used by David Cameron. Uh, we agree that without a single penny of oil revenues, the amount of tax generated per person in Scotland is, to quote the UK Treasury, roughly the same as for the UK as a whole. Now that's very significant. Without oil revenues, the size of the Scottish economy on a per head basis is almost the same as the UK's. When oil revenues are included, per capita national income in Scotland is substantially higher than for the UK. Indeed, in each and every one of the past 32 years, tax generated per head in Scotland has been higher than in the UK as a whole. Uh, we are currently among the top 10 wealthiest countries in the OECD. We have a food and drink industry with a predicted turnover of more than 16 billion pounds. On a per head basis, we have more top universities, including this one, than any other country in the world. We have been described as a hotbed of life sciences. We have strengths in financial services, tourism, creative industries and many other key growth sectors. We've got extraordinary potential in renewable energy and there are up to 24 billion barrels of oil still to be extracted from the North Sea. So we have the strongest of economic foundations and that person needs to stop leaning against the light switch if we are to realise them. <laughs> We have 
the strongest of economic uh, foundations. Uh, indeed, I would suggest that no country anywhere has been better equipped to become an independent nation than Scotland is right now. So as you make up your minds uh, over these next few months, I would ask you to be clear about these key points of agreement. In those areas where the Scottish Parliament already has responsibility, there has been a record of competence and improvement in the lives of people in Scotland. In other words, the principle of taking decisions here in Scotland has been proven to work. And an independent Scotland's economic viability is not in doubt. We can be a successful independent country. These points were settled in 2013. So as we look forward to 2014, what then is the key issue at the heart of this debate? Well, the key question is the one that will be on the ballot paper. Should we be an independent country? I said earlier that we would have the strongest possible starting point as an independent country, and we would. But the choice we face in the referendum is about the future. We need collectively to decide what outcome will best equip us to face that future and the challenges it presents. Like other countries around the world, we face some big challenges, constrained public finances, a legacy of debt, and a shrinking working population relative to our pensioner population. But these are not arguments against independence. In fact, these are products of the status quo. They are reasons not to keep things as they are. They are reasons to do things differently in future. Uh, we need to grow our economy faster, expand our working age population, and increase revenue as a result. And the fact is, as part of the Westminster system, and despite everything we have going for us, Scotland has not performed as well as many of our similar-sized independent competitors. So my argument today is not, emphatically not, that independence will somehow make us immune from these challenges. Uh, rather, it's that independence will give us the tools we need to address these challenges. Uh, our independent neighbours have grown their economies more quickly than we have. In fact, over the 30 years to 2007, if we had matched the average growth rate of comparable European countries, our economy would be nearly 4% bigger than it is today. That's equivalent to around £900 for every person in the country. It's also the case that historically, Scotland's population has grown less quickly than the UK as a whole and countries like Switzerland, Ireland, Sweden and Norway. So the question is, the fundamental question is, what would independence enable us to do to improve our performance in these crucial areas that we can't do as part of the Westminster system. Well, firstly, we could choose to transform childcare, uh, building on the improvements we've been able to make already with the limited powers of devolution. In the Independence White Paper, the Scottish Government set out a long-term plan for the provision of free universal childcare for all children aged between one and five. Right now, childcare costs in Scotland are among the very highest in Europe. They present a real barrier to parents and to women in particular entering the job market and pursuing fulfilling careers. And yet we know that if we can raise female participation in the labour market to levels achieved in, for example, Sweden, then as well as the boost to general economic performance, we would also generate an extra £700 million per year 
in tax revenue. Money that, if Scotland were independent, would stay in Scotland to help fund that policy for the long term. Within a fixed budget, as we have right now, that doesn't automatically benefit from increased tax revenues, no devolved Scottish Government could make such a commitment without making big and painful cuts elsewhere. So this is a social and economic transformation that is only possible in an independent Scotland. Uh, so giving women greater job opportunities is a key aim, but fairness, equality and the achievement of individual ambition are as important as participation. Uh, in Scotland at present, many women don't have the same career opportunities as men. That's not just bad for women, it's bad for our economy. We need to change that. One of the steps we could take is to ensure public and private institutions improve the gender balance of their governance. If this current Scottish Government was the first government of an independent Scotland, we would, for example, introduce a target for women's representation on company boards. Again, the power to do things like this is not currently available to the Scottish Parliament. So like childcare, it's a benefit that will only come with independence. And the point I'm making is that independence isn't just about using policy levers in a slightly different way from Westminster. It is about a fundamentally different view of the kind of country Scotland should be. A Scotland where we don't wait for things to happen to us, but one where we decide to shape our own future. A Scotland where we recognise that if we are to succeed, then we must use everyone's talents and give everyone the opportunity to fulfil their potential, regardless of gender or background, and have the powers to turn that ambition into reality. That's the kind of transformation we should be seeking in an independent Scotland. And there are other things we can transform as well. We can ensure that we have an approach to Europe and to immigration that meets our needs, not one that panders to UKIP. Uh, the fact is, Scotland can't afford the kind of narrow-minded approach of the Tories and UKIP on issues like this. Uh, we are and we should remain enthusiastic members of the EU because it is in our national interest to do so. Jobs, exports and investment absolutely depend on it. Scotland in the EU is the only rational choice for our country, but we should be under no illusion about the threat that Tory dogma driven by the electoral threat of UKIP poses to Scottish interests. Similarly on immigration, our national interests demand a different approach to the one taken by Westminster parties. Our demographics mean that for Scotland, sensible migration is an opportunity, not a threat. It is vital that we grow our working age population if we are to grow our economy and protect our welfare state. Sensible migration, along with more women in the workplace, and more of our own young people able to stay here in Scotland and access good jobs here is important, vital for our future prosperity. Uh, and make absolutely no mistake, in the months leading up to uh, the referendum and indeed also as part of the European elections, we must make sure that Scottish interests are heard over the deeply divisive dogma of the Tories and UKIP. But we must also understand that it is only in an independent Scotland that we will be able to take these decisions for ourselves and protect our vital national interests. Uh, I spoke earlier about some of the important areas of agreement between the yes and the no campaigns. Uh, another of these is the growing concern at what is often called the North-South divide. 
from the Prime Minister down, there is a real recognition now that too much economic activity is concentrated in London and in the southeast of England. Uh, David Cameron says that such a narrow foundation for growth is unstable. But the fact is that trend has continued under successive Westminster administrations and it is accelerating. The gap in economic performance between regions in the UK is larger than in any other EU country. In practical terms, that means jobs and opportunities are increasingly concentrated in London. Indeed, the uh, Westminster Business Secretary, Vince Cable, uh, said just before Christmas that London is like a huge suction machine draining the life out of the rest of the country. And you know what? There's a, a double whammy effect here as well. The poorest areas that are being left behind are also the areas being hardest hit by cuts in spending and social security. And that means only one thing, that gap is going to get wider. So where does Scotland fit in to this picture of grossly unequal economic growth and job opportunities? Well, because of our economic strengths, the strengths I spoke about earlier, and I would argue the decisive action of the Scottish Parliament, we have performed better than any other part of the UK outside of London and the South East. But this referendum is about the long term. So I would ask you to consider this. Think about the long-term economic future for you, for your family, and for generations to come. Which of these outcomes will lead to greater job opportunities and economic security? Is it continuing as a region of an unbalanced economy with one of the biggest gaps between rich and poor in the developed world and lacking the economic powers we need to level the playing field? Or is it becoming a national economy with the full range of economic powers to take advantage and build on our enormous strengths. The powers to deliver a competitive edge for business, grow our working population, transform childcare, boost exports, improve the minimum wage, and design an employment policy that will boost productivity. To take what we call a Team Scotland approach, where we recognise the importance of a shared sense of national purpose. That idea of a shared national purpose has been at the heart of many of the achievements of devolution. Uh, we collectively have taken a different path on issues like free personal care for our older people, the funding of higher education, and the extent of private involvement in our national health service. And the benefits for people in their daily lives of taking decisions here in Scotland have been real and important. And independence, when you really boil it down, is about extending that ability to put our priorities and our interests at the heart of decision-making from just some areas of our national life to all areas of our national life. So it is the transformational potential of independence that I believe is the overriding reason to vote yes. And it should be a reason to vote yes, regardless of what party you normally vote for. Uh, which leads me to another of the central arguments I want to make today. It's precisely because of this transformational potential that I do believe a decision to vote yes transcends party politics. We all want Scotland to succeed. No party has a monopoly on that ambition. And if you accept the principle that the best way of ensuring su success is to give ourselves the powers that help determine it, then it doesn't matter whether or not you support the SNP or our specific plans for using those powers. 
Because what independence will do is ensure that it is always the decisions we take here in Scotland that will determine who governs us and what priorities those in government pursue. And that surely matters to all of us, regardless of our party allegiance. Party loyalty should not be the decisive factor in this debate. Indeed, I would have thought that for most Tory voters, uh, the idea of a parliament that has the power not just to spend money, but also the responsibility to raise that money and be accountable for how it does so would be inherently appealing. And for Labour voters, I would argue that a yes vote is much more in keeping with the home rule traditions of Scottish Labour than a no vote will ever be. You know, one of the, the joys of the Christmas break, for me anyway, is getting the opportunity to read uh, more books than I get time to read during the normal working year. Uh, and one that I particularly enjoyed uh, this holiday was a biography of Tom Johnson, uh, a giant of the Labour movement uh, and someone who was considered to be the greatest ever Secretary of State for Scotland. And what struck me uh, reading that biography was the fact that the Home Rule Bills that were supported in the House of Commons by Tom Johnson and the Red Clydesiders, if they had passed, would have delivered a much more powerful Scottish Parliament than the one we have today. Uh, the Home Rule Bill of 1927, for example, uh, proposed a Scottish Parliament with powers over pensions, unemployment benefits, the post office and all taxes. It would have resulted in responsibility for the armed forces being shared between a Scottish Parliament and Westminster, and it involved uh, the withdrawal of all Scottish MPs from the House of Commons. Uh, so important differences, obviously, but arguably much closer to the modern day independence and offer now than it is to the more limited and timid devolution supported by the current Labour leadership. But what I found even more interesting than that were the reasons people like Tom Johnson gave for supporting such a strong and powerful Scottish Parliament. Uh, the governors would be neither the governed, he said, which in my view is a compelling democratic argument for independence. But more than that, he believed that it would result in Scottish values, needs and priorities dictating public policy. The following quote that I'm going to read to you is obviously from a different time. It's from a different time in both language and substance. But I would argue that the sentiment within it remains relevant today. I would also argue that it should give some pause for thought to Labour supporters who argue that social solidarity with others across the UK is an argument against independence rather than being, as I passionately believe, an argument for it. Tom Johnson said, we in Scotland are ready for great advances in the war against poverty, and I know of no reason why we should remain in destitution until our neighbours desire to march and step with us. And indeed, rightly considered, Home Rule for Scotland would be to the great advantage of the English people, since great advances in the war against poverty north of the Tweed would have tremendous repercussions south of it. Now, as I said, words from a very different time, but nevertheless still relevant to our debate today. Indeed, this might well be the first articulation of the idea that an independent Scotland could and would be a beacon of progressive change across the British Isles. <clears throat> the final point, ladies and gentlemen, I want to make today uh, relates to the nature of the debate I believe we should all aspire to in these next 
few months. It is important to remember that you need the lights on to read a speech. <laughs> I, I don't know whether the person putting the lights off is still to be convinced to vote yes. I've clearly got some work to do on him or her. <laughs> it is important to remember that the referendum isn't a choice between change and no change. The referendum is about choosing the kind of change we want for Scotland and who we want to be in the driving seat of that change, ourselves or Westminster. It is a choice between two futures. And that means that the consequences of both a yes vote and a no vote need to be considered carefully. And that means both the yes and the no campaigns have an obligation to inform. Those of us on the yes side take that responsibility seriously. Uh, as you know, in November, the Scottish Government published the Independence White Paper, setting out the practicalities and opportunities of what will happen if Scotland votes yes. I believe it sets out a powerful and compelling case for independence, and it gives robust, credible and common sense answers to the legitimate questions that people have. I'm happy to let the Scottish people be the judge of it. But to make an informed choice between these two futures, you also need to know what a no vote means for Scotland. So far in this debate, the no campaign has told us why they think independence is bad, but they haven't told us why they think continued government by Westminster is good. They have asked and they have had answered a multitude of questions about what will happen if we vote yes. But the many questions about what will happen in the event of a no vote go completely unanswered. That's not good enough. There are many, many questions that need to be answered by the No campaign. They deserve to be answered, not for my benefit, but for yours, to enable you to make an informed decision. Let me just pose just a few of these questions. What new powers is the Scottish Parliament guaranteed to get if we vote no? Given that there's no consensus on this within the various anti-independence parties, let alone between them. Will the Barnett formula be retained for the long term? Or will the demands that we now hear from politicians in all of the UK parties for it to be reviewed or scrapped lead to a cut in Scotland's budget? What exactly will the implications be for Scottish families of the £25 billion of additional cuts in public spending that have been announced by the Chancellor of the Exchequer this very morning? Is there any guarantee that Scotland will remain part of the European Union if we vote no? given the in-out referendum that is planned for 2017? Uh, what will be done to increase the working age population in Scotland in the event of a no vote? How many children will be living in poverty in Scotland by 2020 if we carry on with current Westminster policies? What steps will be taken to try to close the growing gap between rich and poor? What will the UK's national debt be in 2016? Will an oil fund be established in the event of a no vote? How many defence personnel will be based in Scotland by 2020? And how much will Scottish taxpayers be expected to contribute to the replacement of Trident nuclear weapons? I could go on and on, but I think you probably get my drift. These are all legitimate questions. They all have a direct bearing on whether Scotland's interests will be better served by a yes or a no vote. And I think it's time we had some clear answers from the no campaign. So I'm challenging the No campaign today to publish its equivalent of the white paper, 
Former Labour First Minister Henry McLeish made a similar call just at the weekend, and we see in a poll published this morning that no less than 70% of people in Scotland agree that the No campaign should publish such a document. Now, of course, uh, doing so uh, will involve them admitting to some grim possibilities, which might explain their reluctance. Uh, it's estimated, for example, that up to 100,000 more children in Scotland will be living in poverty by 2020 if we follow the policy path that Westminster is on. And while Scottish politicians in the No campaign try to tell us that everything in the Westminster Garden is rosy, we regularly hear their colleagues south of the border, speaking, of course, to different audiences, saying precisely the opposite. Labour shadow health secretary in the UK says that the privatisation of the NHS is underway in England and that it's going to have irreversible consequences. Now, thanks to devolution, we can pursue a different policy course in Scotland. But make no mistake, privatisation of the health service in England will have a big impact on funding in Scotland. Cuts in funding for public services in England trigger cuts in funding for services in Scotland. So if the Tories are determined to privatise the NHS in England, that will mean cuts to publicly funded healthcare, and that will mean cuts in public funding here in Scotland. Now, Labour might win the next UK election and put a stop to all of this, or they might not. The fact is, the No campaign has to be honest about the possible consequences of voting no. The same is true of our welfare state. Uh, the UK Shadow Education Secretary says, and I quote, the approach of David Cameron and George Osborne to the welfare state reeks of the 1800s. Uh, his colleague, the Shadow Business Minister, says we face a return to the poorhouse of the 19th century. Now, again, I admit, Labour might put a stop to all of this, or they might not. But the No campaign really has to be honest about the possible consequences of voting no. And perhaps... Even more importantly, they have to be honest about the fact that if we remain part of the Westminster system, it won't be our votes that determine these matters, but votes elsewhere in the United Kingdom. The inconvenient truths facing the No campaign simply can't be allowed to stand in the way of the Scottish people making a genuinely informed choice. The Independence White Paper is now out there for people to read, to scrutinise and to judge. We need the same clarity and depth of detail from the other side so that this debate can be taken out of the hands of politicians like me and put firmly where it belongs into the hands of the Scottish people. Let me conclude with this. In an ever-changing, uh, fast-moving world, all countries have to earn success, Scotland included. Our argument is that the best way of building a successful Scotland is to take our future into our own hands, to be in the driving seat of our own destiny. Uh, we believe that it will be better for all of us if decisions about Scotland are taken by the people who care most, those of us who live and work here. Decision-making power really matters. With devolution, it's benefited those in need of personal care, students who would struggle to pay tuition fees, and those who want to keep the NHS as a public service. With independence, it would equip future Scottish governments of any party with the means to ensure greater long-term economic security, more job opportunities, and a fairer society. And it would mean the power to protect against the damaging consequences of Westminster governments determined to pursue a fundamentally different course from that supported by a majority of people 
living here in Scotland. So at the beginning of this most uh, important and I hope most exciting of years, I have little doubt, in fact, I've got no doubt at all that you will think about the consequences of voting yes. But I ask you also to think about the consequences of voting no. I ask you to look carefully at the Scottish Government's detailed blueprint for an independent Scotland, but also to listen to everything, everything that the opponents of an independent Scotland say about the future of public services, about where job opportunities are likely to be in the future, about our social security system. Listen to what they say to different audiences and then ask yourself this question. Will it be better for me, my family and for future generations to come if decisions about Scotland continue to be taken at Westminster or will it be better if they're taken here in Scotland instead? Think about the two futures on offer and then resolve to put Scotland's future into Scotland's hands by voting yes on the 18th of September. Thank you very much indeed.